Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Over the past few months, Americans have become obsessed with statistics. We track the percentage of people in our state testing positive for COVID, the number of positives per 100,000. We wonder whether that maybe means gyms are safe or dentist offices, or maybe we should wait for lower community spread. These decisions should not be left solely to individuals. And I mean, the absurdity of this was watching states reopen bars and then watching those officials who made that decision blame people for going to the bars. That's Julia Marcus, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School, who has spent much of her career focusing on human immunodeficiency viruses, HIV. And it just doesn't compute. It's like we can't be putting this burden on individual citizens to be managing their risk when it's really the government's responsibility to be ensuring that its citizens can remain safe in their everyday decisions. But we are all trying to assess risk, crazy and head spinning as that assessment may be. And if you were looking for a microcosm of that craziness, complete with impossible decisions and competing motives, you couldn't do much better than a college campus. From a college viewpoint to looking at my peers, I don't think they're taking it seriously enough. I have a lot of friends who are seniors who are very upset that, you know, their last year of college is going to be spent kind of, you know, half at home, half on campus. That's Sky Langley, a student at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and J.J. Conway, a student at Kenyon College. The University of North Carolina, rather famously, had students move in in early August and then switch to online learning in the wake of parties and rising cases. Boston University warned that students who host large parties will be suspended. No one knows what the right amount of punishment or anger is if students violate social distancing. If you are opening a university, and particularly in a, an area that has more than you know very low community spread, there will be outbreaks on campus, and you know that's something I think we can accept. But I think the question then becomes: What is the university going to do to ensure that those outbreaks remain relatively contained? Julia Marcus from Harvard Medical School says. It might mean testing the entire student body every two to three days, which isn't easy. More broadly, she questions whether our approach to coronavirus on college campuses makes sense. Does it look at the totality of public health in a logical way? And does it say something about what we're asking of all citizens, regardless of age? Look, I don't want to absolve students of all responsibility here, but I also think it's the responsibility of, you know, school administrators, public health experts, elected officials to take into account human behavior when they make mm. policy decisions. And I think that that has not happened here. I think it's really unrealistic. And again, not not trying to say that students should go ahead and party. That's that's certainly not what I would encourage. But I think it is unrealistic to assume that college students for whom, you know, the risk of a bad outcome of this virus is very low would radically change their behavior and not gather. And and especially because colleges have not been providing safer alternatives for students to remain socially connected, as, at least as far as I've seen. So if, if it 
doesn't make sense for a college to say, hey, you know, you've really wanted to come back to campus and be social and and here and here you are, uh, but don't be too social. Um, if that doesn't make sense, what does a college do? Like what kind of alternative is there for, I don't know, partying but being safe or I, I'm not sure what's the, the middle ground? Yeah, I mean, I again, this may also not be realistic, but I would suggest think taking this on the way that colleges take on underage drinking and, and the risks of alcohol consumption on campus. Colleges have implemented various strategies to reduce the harms of alcohol use on campuses. And one of the things that they, they have done is provide safer alternatives, you know, to basically lure students away from parties where there's going to be rampant alcohol use. And of course, that's not 100% effective, but it's one strategy. And they also have unlinked the consequences um, of underage drinking, you know, any any disciplinary action from any health-related action. So right, students right, right. are basically immune from disciplinary action if, let's say, somebody needs medical attention because they drank too much. And that approach is not being taken here. There have been very clear threats to students about harsh, swift disciplinary action if they break the the contracts that they have Mm. been signing around behavior related to social distancing and masks. And um, I I really think this is uh, setting setting the students up to fail. Well, it also seems to like, let's say you were trying to do contact tracing and as a college and think, well, who was at that party? Well, nobody's going to want to tell you who was at it. Absolutely not. Right. (laughs) If the people who own the house are going to get in huge trouble and then they'll never talk to you again. And contact tracing doesn't work that well if nobody will tell you their contacts. That's right. And they won't even disclose symptoms. So there's a lot of schools that are, are implementing these symptom tracking apps that students yeah. are supposed to use every day. And if we all just take a step back and put ourselves in our 19 yep. year old selves for a minute, I mean, there's no way I would report a headache or a fever if it meant, you know, especially if I had just attended an event I wasn't supposed to attend where there was also underage drinking and, you know, maybe substance use. And (laughs) I mean, just the layers of um, issues here that, you know, reflect, I think, issues that are happening beyond college campuses around um, stigma and trust in contact tracing, but I think are amplified in the college setting. And it is just so, when you talk about the symptom tracker, it is just so complicated. I mean, what if you have seasonal allergies? Were you going to tell people every time you have a runny nose or whatever and not be able to ever go to your lectures or your sections or anything? I mean, you see the built-in incentive for not really talking about what you're experiencing because the punishment is harsh. That's right. And and nobody wants a hundred of their friends to have to be quarantined because, right. you know, they reported a, a sore throat. Right, right. Um, you also say that risk calculations are complicated. And you alluded to this before, that, you know, a 21-year-old who's been self-isolating for months, uh, you know, maybe with their, with their uh, like, nuclear family, um, they're not necessarily looking at risk in the same way as an 81-year-old. And not, they shouldn't necessarily be. Can you just talk a little bit about that kind of, like, risk calculation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when we as individuals make risk calculations, which we do every day in in many ways, you know, there's various things that go into that equation. One, I think in the case of COVID would be what's going on in my community? Is there a ton of community spread or, or very little? A second consideration is how vulnerable am I to this virus? Am I at high risk of a bad outcome? And or are the people around me at risk of a, of a bad outcome? And then and then we also think about the actual activity that we're engaging in. Like, am I going to an indoor restaurant and what kind of risk does mm. that you know confer? Or am I just going for a walk with somebody in the park? Um, and then we also, I think this is less talked about, but part of that equation is the benefits of whatever you know uh -huh. decision we're making. It's a risk-benefit equation, but we often just talk about the risk assessment part. And the benefits are also going to vary for, by individual. And so for young people who are at low risk of a bad outcome and are in a setting on a college campus where, in fact, almost everybody around them is at low risk of a bad mm -hmm. outcome. And, you know, and that, that doesn't mean that infection can't spread to staff, to faculty, and to the community. But I'm just talking about, you know, what is a student seeing? They're seeing right. themselves. Right, they're right. seeing the students around them. And the benefits are great to these students of social connection. And they really need that social contact. And that's what they thrive on. And they also are at a stage in their lives when the, you know, risk taking is natural instinct. And so all of those things together are a recipe for what we're seeing playing out right now. I mean, I, I wonder what we know about young people and sort of issues of depression and other things that have been suffered over the last few months that are also like, I mean, coronavirus is a risk and, and depression is one as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we all are considering competing risks in our um, decision making right now. You know, ri the risk of infection does not exist in a vacuum and health is far more than the absence of disease. And I think for young people, those mental health risks are greater than they are for other people. And of course, we, we all are weighing those mental health risks in general. But I think right. for young people who are already at increased risk, of depression and anxiety, I think that that and suicide, you know, suicide ideation, like that, that's all going to be factoring into their decision making as well. Are there ways that you as a public health expert feel like we could be dealing with coronavirus differently, sort of going from the frame that you talked about, where like, is there behavior that is problematic, but we're dealing with it in the wrong way? A hundred percent. So first, you know, I'll say that here's an example, bringing this to today, of the way that this kind of moralistic perspective can interfere with our thinking around the science. So when you see articles in the media about the pandemic and about surging cases, some very large proportion of the time, those articles are accompanied by a photo of people on the beach. And it's often, yeah. you know, not a particularly crowded beach. It's just people on the beach in bikinis, lounging, having a good time. Why is that the iconic photo of this pandemic? Hmm. Beaches are a relatively low risk place for people to gather. And just by attaching those images over and over to articles about the pandemic, it actually creates misinformation about where risk really lies. And, you know, it's coming from, I would argue, a moralistic perspective that if we show this photo, people are going to click on it because they're going to be so outraged that people are having a good time in a pandemic, even if they're doing something low risk. So that's that's an example of how that 
that moralism kind of it makes us unscientific. But yes, there are activities that are are fun, and there are activities that are not fun that that people are engaging in that are are putting themselves and others at risk. So if we take um, the extreme of a, a huge crowded house party, yes, that's yeah. something we need to address. Um, but if we approach it from a moralistic perspective and we we tell people that they're selfish and bad for doing this and, and that we're going to punish them, again, that is going to drive people away from public health efforts. And it already is. It makes people shut down. It makes them not trust public health experts. It makes people not want to participate in contact tracing. We've seen that over and over again, particularly with parties. Um, and, you know, the alternative is to take an approach where we actually take a step back and ask, why are people engaging in this behavior? Like that should be step one of public health is try to really think about why this behavior that is not desirable in a pandemic, but is happening. Why Why is it happening? Is it because people are selfish and bad or is it because they really need social connection and actually people need to have fun? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. And so then we can start to say, well, how can we meet people's needs such that they don't engage in this really high risk behavior? How can we help them stay socially connected and enjoy their lives in a way that's safer? You know, it's so interesting when you say that. I think back to the spring and... um they used to sometimes um, air Governor Cuomo of New York's, uh, like he would give addresses in the middle of the day, updates every day, and he would talk about being on a New York pause. And, you know, here we are, like six-ish months into this. And, you know, six months is like more than a pause, right? And I think in the beginning, it felt like just pause those behaviors that you want to do. Now, how do you deal with that when you think about the issue of public health? Because it doesn't feel like a pause. And it doesn't seem like we're about to get rid of coronavirus next week. Not really. That's exactly right. I mean, I think you can ask a lot of a population for a month, maybe two months. And I think that that is really what people committed to in the beginning. Yeah. And people did it. Some people were asked to make radical changes in their lives that, you know, when they weren't living in a, a place that really had a lot of community spread. And the result is that by the time, uh, you know, more virus got to those places, people were dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we can, again, moralize about people having quarantine fatigue, but really it's just that humans are not designed to remain in social isolation for an extended period of time. And there's a real impact to that that I think we need to be considering and, and we need to be thinking about health in a, a broader sense around well-being. And that's not to say we, we should, um, you know, just go back to business as usual. We absolutely not. I think this is about finding ways that we can live sustainably while keeping the risk of transmission low. And I think we're still kind of failing to do that. So if you were advising a governor on what like what could be done better, um, what would you say from your perspective, from watching things happen around the country, what would you like to see more of? I would like to see more compassion and more creativity. Those are the kind of the two main things. So compassion in terms of 
public health messaging, but also really thinking about what it is that people need right now and what will sustain them, and then coming up with creative solutions. But maybe that looks like opening up more outdoor space and changing regulations around the use of outdoor space so that parking lots can be used for beer gardens and um, people are allowed to drink in, in some contained way in, in, let's say, a public park. Things that will actually bring people outside of their homes such Got that it. they will forgo those crowded indoor house parties that we want them to avoid. And also, I think I want to say, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about parties here because we were mm. thinking about college campuses and what right. the risks are there. But when you look at contact tracing data, and of course, it's not generally released to the public, but but some has been. There were some that were recently released by Louisiana. And it was very striking to me that the vast majority of cases were being traced to indoor workplaces, including food processing plants, with a small minority being traced to social events. But there's this outsized focus on social events because of that that moral approach, I think. And and we're still six months into this, not protecting workers who are in high risk settings that we've known to be high risk for months. Mm. And so let's start there. Like, let's start with protecting the people who have no choice but to be exposed and give them paid sick leave, give them PPE. And then, yeah, sure, worry about the parties and try to help people find safer alternatives to those as well. Uh, finally, you know, we started by talking about colleges. Um uh, which are these, you know, little sort of communities in a bubble in some sense. You also wrote, I think, after the killing of George Floyd and the protests that, you know, public health is complex and there's not just one part of public health. It's not just coronavirus. There are other things, too. Um, and, you know, standing up for what you believe in can be a very important thing as well. As we kind of leave behind this first six months of dealing with coronavirus, um, how do you think about where it fits in the context of public health? Because now we enter into it, right, financial hardship, depression. This is like a complex picture that has coronavirus as a piece of it. Yeah, I, you know, that's a, a really important question. I think um, I worry a bit that what has happened because of this crisis and during this crisis is that public health practitioners have become reductively focused on infection prevention. And I see this in my field of HIV research all the time, that there's almost a, a myopic approach where we must prevent cases at all costs. But we also need to consider those costs. Yes, we need to minimize infection right now and morbidity and mortality associated with infection. But we are, in some cases, making decisions about infection prevention, I think, without really considering the broader impacts on health. And I think we need to expand our scope and our lens and be thinking more broadly. When you say that uh, with you know, we're making decisions without considering the greater impact on health, like what are you thinking of? Well, you know, I think... Uh, it's difficult to talk about this, to be frank, yeah. because we ha we are so polarized in this yeah. discussion. It's difficult to talk about broader aspects of health right now without someone saying, you know, are you saying the cure is worse than the yeah, disease? Right. You know, <laughs> um, no, I, I'm not. I'm saying we actually need to make sure that we are considering these other impacts to 
both the virus, but also our, our interventions to keep transmission low. I mean, I think there is a very tricky balance there. And it's a conversation I, I would like to see happening more and without kind of boxing people into one camp versus another. Julia Marcus is an epidemiologist and professor at Harvard Medical School. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. On our website, we're going to link to some of Julia's writing about COVID. We'll also have the striking diary of a student who attended UNC for just a couple of weeks before she had to move back home. That's all at innovationhub.org. And a big welcome this week to our listeners on WFDD in North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks also to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRX.